Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy and banter. Gabe Dowrick. Hello, Ben. Morning, Gabe. Every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, we'll be reviewing two twin movies about a renegade law enforcement official who teams up with a maverick skydiver to stop a heist. It's Terminal Velocity versus Drop Zone. Let's see who stuck the landing. Ah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, thank you very much. Yeah, very good. <laughs> uh, as usual, let's kick up this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. On the 23rd of September, 1994, Terminal Velocity was released. Here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. A maverick skydiver and a former KGB agent team up to stop the Russian mafia from stealing gold. Gabe, did you originally catch Terminal Velocity at the movies and how was that experience? Ben, I didn't. Although I definitely saw this on VHS in like 1995. Um, I can't say I have particularly indelible memories of watching it on VHS, but I I know I did. Um, and... Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't have much more than that when it comes to terminal velocity and my my very first viewing experience. I should say I, I haven't watched it since then, um, uh, except for a day or two ago when I watched it for this. So it was actually kind of fun to 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 come back to that. You know, I love movies made in the nineties, no matter how shitty they are. So it's always a pleasure. Oh, hold that thought. We'll get to that because what the sh- the shittiness? Yeah, these films are an exception to the rule, but I'll keep. My powder dry. Okay. Now, I actually only finished watching this film for the first time uh, about 30 minutes ago, would you believe? So it is fresh in my memory or, as my review will testify, a searing, burning scar, much like that serious pain that people experience after, you know, constipation for a long time. This was my first experience. This will be my last experience with Terminal Velocity. You don't, you don't know that. <laughs> you don't know that. You might watch it again one day. Yeah, okay, never say never. That's right. Um, so let's discuss this film came out in 1994. Little Benny Phelps here was uh, travelling overseas in his gap year between school and uni, which again dates me, I know, Gabe, and I didn't have a pretty pound to spend at the movies. And I think in a previous podcast episode I described paying something obscene like 50 Australian dollars to see a terrible movie. I think it was Demolition Man in London at the big sort of cinemas there. Um, I can't recall. They've got a famous name, but they're like the most famous, iconic mainstream cinemas. Odeon. That's the one, the Odeon cinemas. Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Good, good guess. All right. So Terminal Velocity and Drop Zone both came out in 94 when I was overseas and I just wasn't inspired to see them. And then what happened was that year became like this mysterious – it was a gap year for me traveling, but it was also like a gap year in my filmography of movies I've seen. Like there are so many movies in that year I just couldn't afford to see and they never caught up on a VHS. And I also missed, I think, my friends talking about them because I was traveling by myself overseas. So I missed all the discourse, all the, the chitter chatter amongst your mates over drinks. So yeah, there are always two films I knew were twin movies in concept. They're two movies that I know were, you know, playing at the big mainstream cinemas at the time, but they just sort of got sucked into that little sort of, you know, Bermuda Triangle 
in my movie viewing history. Yeah, I think everyone was talking about a movie I've probably never seen that came out at about exactly the same time. I think it's called Jur- Jurassic Park. Oh, I, I hear it's good, but. Yes, yes, it's a park of Jurassic dinosaurs I hear of, yes. Whatever they are, whatever they are, I'm not sure. But I think it, this may well have been eclipsed a little by that. Um, not for me, though. Seeing Charlie Sheen's butt as he skydives is, <laughs> that's, if, if they could stick something in amber and recreate that in, uh, you know, 45 million years' time, I hope it's that. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, jump to Drop Zone because on the 9th of December 1994, it was released. And here's the synopsis from IMDb. A tough cop teams up the professional skydiver to capture a renegade computer hacker on the run from the law. I like it. Gabe, talk me through when and how you first dropped into a drop zone. I don't know if I saw this at the movies. I don't think I did. I definitely saw it on VHS. It's the sort of movie that, you know, on um, uh, when I would spend a, a weekend at my dad's house or whatever, um, we'd go to the video store and he'd be like, let's rent some action movies. would be like, sweet, let's rent Drop Zone. And then I probably, I probably really enjoyed it um, in 1994 as a 11 or 12 year old. Um, I've watched this a couple of times since then. <laughs> Don't ask me why, <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah. Again, again, I guess I love it when we talk about these 90s movies or like older twin movies. Um, I guess unfortunately for this one, there isn't a particularly amazing story. I was too young to drink. So you don't get any of the blackout anecdotes. Um, uh, yeah. What about you, Ben? Did you just also watch Drop Zone not but one day ago? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's nice. right. What were you doing? Not- oh, yeah, you're on a gap year. That's right. You explained that. Like literally like three minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. No wonder I've watched this movie so many times. I have a memory like a sieve. I'm always like, oh, I do enjoy Wesley Sachs movies. I'm sure it'll be good this time. <laughs> uh, yeah, I always confuse this, this film somewhere in that, lineage of films in the Wesley Snipes uh, IMDb list where it fell somewhere around Demolition Man, Passenger 57. I knew it was definitely before Blade. I knew it was after White Men Can't Jump. And he did a lot of films and earned a lot of cash and avoided a lot of tax in that time. (laughs) Nice. And I just couldn't quite place where it came from. So, yeah, first time. Saw her on uh, the small screen, uh, but my you know my screen at home's a big screen, and I have thoughts on this one as well. But first, before we jump into a review and a comparison of these twin movies, let's find out how we got here with a quick shallow dive into the Hollywood history. It appears that Terminal Velocity was an original screenplay by I can never pronounce his name. I think it's David Toy. 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 Twahe. And there doesn't seem to be a very interesting story behind the evolution of that particular film. As for Drop Zone, it was actually an original idea that came from two professional skydivers, Tony Griffin and Guy Manis. And interestingly, one of the third screenwriters went on to later write a totally different genre, High School Musical. So that's the origin of the two movies. They seem to have basically come about coincidentally, They weren't based on pre-existing intellectual property and they did end up in a production race, which occasionally happens with these twin movies. And Terminal Velocity was keen to get there first uh, and went for the September release. So Paramount took the pedal off the metal, took some extra time to film scenes to then have it ready for a primetime holiday season release. 
And as we'll see in the box office, it may have paid off. But let's just jump in to a review, <laughs> excuse the pun, of Terminal Velocity. Now, I've got to say this just before we start. Um, I'm going to basically potentially prejudice your review, Gabe. Oh, okay. I want to know, did you like Terminal Velocity? I want to know, did it float your boat? And I want to know, it was a good execution of the common premise it shares the drop zone. But before you answer that, I want to say this. These two films are iconic twin movies in the sense that they came out within a few months of each other. The concept is very, very similar. They starred two stars kind of at the height of their powers. Uh, it's a classic case of doing the – who's the guy we talk about again? Uh, the guy who died, unfortunately, was into s and uh, Which <laughs> – Who like who was Jerry Bruckheimer and – Oh, Don Simpson. Don Simpson. Wait, he was – I just thought he was into cocaine and doing big shits. <laughs> well, the last one could be masochism, I suppose. <laughs> Died on the can. What a way to go. I'm saluting right now. And these guys. Just so you know. Are the ones that popularised the expression high concept, right? And these films are both high concept movies. Um, I have never dreaded doing a podcast recording in the, I think this is our 36th episode, more than these two films. Um, I... That it is almost the perfect combination to talk about in terms of tearing these movies apart because I don't think they're very good. But it was no fun to watch. Just last time, we did two episodes ago, two of my favourite movies of all time, Guilty Pleasures, one of them particularly, Entrapment versus The Thomas Crown Affair. And that was a great case of good movies to watch and great podcasts to record. I'm going to have a good time this morning, Gabe, a good time with this episode, but man, ah, oh, these movies were like pulling teeth. Really? But, you know, not to prejudice your review, over to you. I like them. <laughs> like, <laughs> I had a great time with particularly Terminal Velocity. Um, I'm steepling my fingers right now um, and I would say this is 1994's high-octane answer to North by Northwest. Oh, <laughs> wow, whoa. whoa. <laughs> um, yeah, this movie. I mean, look objectively. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of sh- crappy stuff in it. But oh man, like you know, there's not many movies where like a KGB agent recruits a low rent skydiving stripper to steal a me- a metal rod, some sort of tungsten rod. Um, that's great. Like as a premise, tell me another movie that's about about that. You can't. Drop zone. <laughs> no, well, he, there's, there's, there's not enough stripping in that one. I mean- Hang on. Did I see an entirely different movie? So hang on, Natasha Kinski's a stripper. I thought she was a KGB agent. No, Charlie Sheen's a stripper. Oh, right. Sorry. Gotcha. <laughs> you know, the opening sequence, the opening sequence of him landing at the, at the wrong birthday party or something, you know, he thinks he's turning up to a bachelorette, but actually turns up at some, uh, you know- nine-year-old girl's birthday, which is probably committing some kind of, like, crime. Um, great premise, great premise. <clears throat> he's, just a, he's just a regular guy, just a regular guy who, who finds himself uh, in, an, in an incredible situation, pursued by James Gandolfini and uh, Shooter McGavin. Like, like, on paper, amazing, amazing. Okay, uh, all right. I can't believe you, you don't like this movie more. And it's got, you know, like... Oh, 
there's, there's a couple of memorable sequences. There's a couple of forgettable sequences. Melvin Van Peebles is in it. It's, I actually thought, it's got an opening, like, it's, the, the, okay, so picture this. It has this, like, serious little bit of opening music where you're like, are they doing an overture? Is Terminal Velocity starting with a fucking overture? And then no, bang! Like, the, the guitars kick in and, like, the words Terminal Velocity fly onto the screen. Strap yourselves in and feel the Gs. You know it's coming, man. The velocity is going to get terminal. <laughs> um, let me start with a positive. This film has an awesome opening sequence. There's a woman on the road. She's driving around, a bit lost in the kind of fog. You can't quite work out if she's just a character to set up the story or actually a protagonist. Anyway, she's a bit confused, driving around, and then this 747 almost lands on her car. I think she refers to there being like tread marks on the roof and just lands in the middle of a desert. That's a great sequence. I think that sequence is actually taken from uh, footage that fell on the editing floor in Air America, which explains why it looks really good. What? <laughs> but, yeah, apparently so. Wow, okay. Um, yeah, but that's a great sequence like, oh, okay, a 747 has ostensibly been hijacked or something and is landing in the middle of the desert. And those planes are big mothers. And to land one of those planes on a dirt road and desert is a pretty crazy idea. So I like that. It piques my curiosity. Then Charlie Sheen appears as a stripper parachuting down to a birthday party. Um, it is so weird. He lands at this birthday party. He's wearing, like, leather chaps. But the odd part is when he lands at the party, at the front he's dressed normally. But at the back, he has his bum exposed. He'd have like two buttocks cheeks and it says something on each cheek, I think, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, it says something or other. I can't quite remember. Happy birthday or something. Something is written in texture and permanent marker on his bum. And he lands at this party and everyone's screaming out of disgust at looking at him, which makes absolutely z- zero sense because they're not looking at his bum. They're looking at the front, which is just leather pants and a singlet, which is really weird. So it doesn't make any sense at all why they're so distressed by him. And Well, that's actually because we can't see the front, but he's got his dick hanging out. <laughs> Sometimes it's the things that you don't see, Ben, that are most terrifying. <laughs> that explains what ruined the cake. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. Um, so then it appears almost from the start that Charlie Sheen is like, 20 years ahead of the curve from hashtag winning, he's doing performance art and it appears he has stepped off the two Hot Shots movies and is doing Hot Shots 3. He, his performance in this film is bizarre. Like I was watching this film thinking, does he know he's in a serious film or does he think it's Hot Shots or is he just basically messing with the director and the audience? And I read some reviews and they all said the same thing. It was like he'd taken his character performance from Hot Shots which, if you haven't seen it, is basically a spoof of these types of movies. It's a parody movie. Ben, Ben, I've seen Hot Shots. Yeah, no, for the audience listeners. I've seen Hot Shots. And he is right. taking the piss. And the way he delivers his quips and strides around with the square jaw, it feels like it, it just has to be him not wanting to be in this movie or doing it for the cash, a paycheck, but just taking the absolute piss out of the movie because – it is totally at odds with what the rest of the movie is. It's so weird. It, it is. It is so confusing to me. You're, you're right. It is a movie of many tones, I guess. And that's one of the things I like about it. I mentioned 
Shooter McGavin before who will only be referred to as Shooter McGavin, um, <laughs> who plays this blonde villain who is in another movie again, <laughs> some entirely different movie where- He is playing Shooter McGavin, the same character he played in Happy Gilmore, uh, in this movie. It is bizarre. Like, if you think that Charlie Sheen is, you know, working at 11 out of 10, what's Shooter at? 20? Oh, there's no, the, the, the dial doesn't go that high. <laughs> um, it is dialed so far up. But, um, but, but then, you know, they have a kind of serious plot about espionage and KGB agents and defections and, you know, all that sort of business. I mean, I guess maybe Charlie Sheen's thing is that he's, you know, just this rascal out of his depth and he's just trying to get by. I mean, I quite like... I have to say I quite like that about the the movie. You know, he has a set of skills, skydiving, not always useful, situationally useful. Turns out here it's very useful. Good for him. But, you know, he can't shoot guns or anything. And, like, I like the sequence where there's, like, a shootout in some sort of plain boneyard or whatever in an airstrip. And, you know, um, Natasha Kinski hands him a gun and he's like, I don't know how to use this. Ah, it's broken, it's broken. And she's like, you're an idiot. She's good at the guns and stuff. I like that about it, you know. I thought that was cool. It'd be too easy to make him... Uh, good at good at good at more stuff. You know, I thought that was a nice little uh, a nice little little character trait or moment or whatever. Um, and I suppose that's the opposite of Drop Zone. In Drop Zone, Wesley Snipes is good at kicking ass, but not good at skydiving. It's inversion. Yeah, basically the yeah exactly the roles are reversed. I agree with you. I like the fact that Natasha Kinski is the law enforcement person, the KGB ex agent. I like that. She's the one in control. You know, it's almost a role reversal of these types of movies where he is the female character and that he's sort of disempowered and she often protects him. I like that. This is why this film is either the worst film of all time or it's a subversion of every possible cliche and it's the most genius film of all time. Mm, That's the latter. (laughs) I don't think it's that and I don't think it strives for that, but there are moments where it's unintentionally smart. So I love the idea that, for example, you're right, he can't operate a gun and he's a bit of a moron and he's like the dits. I mean, the fact that he's actually a stripper as well is almost making that clear to the audience that he isn't the smartest tool in the shed. So that's cool. I like that. I mean, look, let's just quickly go through this movie in sequence, just really quickly, because there are some great ideas in it. It's just the execution. Like I mentioned the first scene. The plane landing. That's really cool. I like that idea. Mm -hmm. Like whenever you have a film which has terrorists in it and they hijack a plane, it's always about the act of taking over the plane and usually it's resolved in midair. This film sort of starts where a plane has been hijacked and then later on in the movie, spoilers, you actually see all these cabin crew tied up and dead um, in that plane. So that's a kind of cool idea. Um, The opening sequence, a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The last, I was going to say, let's work through this sequentially, but the rest of the film's a blur. Oh. But the last sequence is really good. <laughs> let's work through it sequentially, the <laughs> opening, and then we'll just skip to the end. <laughs> well, I just realised that the rest of the film is pretty forgettable in the middle, but I thought the ending was really, really good. Okay. Well, well, no, not necessarily. I think Natasha Kinski turning up and preying on Charlie Sheen's character's kind of dumbbell idiocy by being flirtatious with him. She then got, pretends like it's her first ever jump, goes up in a plane, jumps out. That's really cool. He thinks she's dead. 
I mean, that's all a little bit nebulous. You'd think the coroner or someone, but, I mean, they, they patch over that and explain that. Anyway, he thinks she's dead. He's then wondering what happened. He figures out, oh, there was a second plane. There's more to this. She recruits him um, to help break into some sort of facility um, or to steal some inanimate carbon rod. I'm sure they explain what that fucking rod does. All I always think about is the inanimate carpet rod from The Simpsons. So do I, so do I. Look, if, 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 if that's what they're going for, that's even better. Um, uh, Gandolfini turns up as the least believable assistant district attorney ever. <laughs> like, like, if you saw this guy, you'd be like, clearly the villain. Clearly a villain. <laughs> yeah, like basically, if you've been to the movies in the 90s, you most recently saw him in True Romance. If he's in this film, oh yeah, he just is menacing, isn't he? Like you can see when they cast The Sopranos, he would have walked into the room, done the performance, dropped Mike, and David Chase, creator of The Sopranos, would have just thought, okay, I've got my Tony Soprano. Like he is so powerful on screen and clearly not at all a cop. <laughs> no. I mean, I think I like his performance in this, you know, like when he's he's got these sort of little nervy habits, he chews the what it mints or whatever, and I mean, he's incredibly watchable as an actor. You know, obviously, the Sopranos, the character Tony Soprano, it's a character with real depth and so on. Uh, Pink Water, I believe, is his name in this, does not have that sort of depth. <laughs> but um, I liked him. I liked him. Um, so anyway, Gandolfini approaches him. Uh, approaches Ditch. We should point out as well, I know we'll get to it later, but uh, Charlie Sheen's character is named Ditch Brody. (laughs) Great name. Great name. I smell an award winner up ahead. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Anyway, I guess after that, it is a bit of a blur. Some stuff happens. He realises that James Gandolfini is the bad guy. They have a shootout. They explode. He makes out with Natasha Kinski. And then, yeah, there's a really great sequence. Come on, you've got to agree. The sequence where the car goes out of the plane, that's pretty cool. That is... That's awesome. And actually, interestingly enough, I now res- disrespect – no, that's not fair. I don't have as much respect for that similar sequence in one of my favourite films, one of your favourite films of all time, Nicolas Cage, Con Air, where you have the car coming out of the plane. That's a great scene. I watch this movie and go, huh, like this is a very similar moment. And I also think of films like Fast and Furious where I think it's Fast Five – they are basically Dom's driving the car beside the train and Paul Walker's character. What's he called again? Paul Walker. <laughs> Paul Walker. <laughs> has to jump off the train before it hits a bridge and takes out Paul Walker. So he jumps off the train. This is like a starting sequence in Fast Five. Onto the back of Dom's convertible and it goes over a cliff and they kind of like then jump onto the back of the plane. It's so unbelievable. Like it defies physics. And as the plane's falling or the car's falling, they then kind of like almost jump again off the back of the falling car and land in the water. This sequence actually is the precursor to both those major set pieces combined. Like it looks amazing. Like it looks really cool. First of all, it's a car falling out of the sky. That's awesome. We saw that in Fast 7 as well, I think. It's a red car. Even better. The stakes are high. Spoiler. Natasha Kinski is stuck in the boot or the trunk of the car. And as they're falling, Charlie Sheen has to actually undo the trunk with the key and get her out and then land safely with her. 
And then even when they actually then land, the car explodes. Yeah. And they fly through, in the parachute, through this huge fireball, but then have to basically cut that first chute because they're coming too fast. And I think that chute's burning or something to then use the emergency chute to then saw down this ravine. It's a really, really good sequence. And a great scene of Shooter McGavin, once he's sort of pushed away from the car, kind of like shooting helplessly into the sky. Oh, terrible. With his gun. (laughs) I mean, can we bring up now, I suppose, there's some pretty great stunt work in these movies, but matching the stunt work by, uh, you know, a sort of, anonymous stunt professionals doubling for these people with kind of shitty uh, either blue screen or rear projection or however they've done it. Oh, man. Like, it, it sort of sometimes doesn't work. And, like, you're right, that shot of Shooter McGavin going, yeah, back off into, it's amazing. I was trying to find gifts of it. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> uh, so great. I'm going to say the so blue great. screen slash uh, live work intercut together, I think it works better in terminal velocity. Mm. And they say that you can have average film, but if you've got a killer third act, it can redeem the preceding two thirds of the movie. Terminal velocity almost gets away with it because that last set piece, I think, is actually so good with the stakes increasing bit by bit. It's actually a great example of how to do a good action scene where you're not just throwing fireworks to make it more impressive, Mm. you're upping the stakes every time and just when you think it's over, the stakes get upped again. And I actually think the the filming of it looks incredibly naturalistic. Apparently they actually hung a red car, uh, the red sports car, on a line from a chopper and then just used like a reverse zoom to give us a sense of that falling. And to me it looks really good. And there's some great shots where you see the parachuters – uh, falling and the skyline just whipping past behind them. So I think it works better, whereas when you look at Drop Zone, which we'll get to, the shots of Wesley Snipes on the blue screen going, woohoo, yahoo, like lots of yahooing, Yeah, to me look much less realistic. Yeah, and it's interesting because the wides in both of these movies, you can really tell that's obviously not the actors. It's almost like unapologetically doubled, except I suppose if you've got, yeah, Wesley Snipes ADR going, yo, woo! Um, And it's a real shame. Um, I read, I think, uh, an interview uh, from 1994 with um, Wesley Snipes and John Badham, and Wesley Snipes said he did a bunch of skydiving, but it's not in the movie. And, And in Terminal Velocity, it's not in the movie either. But, you know, you think of uh, Point Break, and Swayze doing his own skydiving in Point Break is sick, you know? Like, it looks f- awesome. It does. I mean, it works because, A, you see his face clearly. He only wears yeah. those clear goggles. He has long hair, which helps to convey he's actually diving with the hair flapping around. Mm. Whereas, for example, Wesley Snipes has short hair, so you can't kind of, like, get that sense of, like, movement, you know, the speed in which they're falling. And the way it's filmed by Catherine Bigelow in Point Break where – the camera basically just follows him out the plane is fantastic. Like, Yeah, it's great. I mean, we give so many props to Tom Cruise doing his own stunt work and we've discussed recently him doing that famous halo jump, which is the name of a jump at incredible height that mainly, you know, people in the armed forces do in I think it was Mission Impossible Fallout uh, with Henry Cavill 
And that film was then using so much CG to complement and re- replace uh, Sky and so on that it took away from the naturalism and the fact that he actually did jump for real. Whereas with, mm. uh, what's his name, Bodhi, when Bodhi does it in Point Break, you feel it. And it's a shame they couldn't get any shots like this in these two movies. I do think, though, we get a greater sense of Charlie Sheen being either in a plane or the way it's cut that is actually him jumping out. It might not actually be him jumping out, but I feel it's more organic and realistic than the kind of choppy-chop-chop editing they use to try and convey Wesley Snipes doing it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And to be fair, there might be any number of reasons why these actors couldn't do the skydiving themselves. They might say they couldn't for insurance purposes. I might say that they're fucking cowards. But, you know, <laughs> somewhere between those two things is the is the answer. And, look, there's an actor, and we'll, we should talk about it when we get to Drop Zone. There is an actor who does do his own skydiving in Drop Zone and he's someone you might not expect and he just and you're like, well, if he could do it, fuck's wrong with you other guys? But, anyway. Hey, actually, I should also mention, Ben, I do recall now, I think the villains in Terminal Velocity, they, they, they're looking, they've got, they're stealing gold bullion because they want to finance a coup d'etat against the democratic Russian government. And it's so funny watching a movie from 1994 and the politics of then, um, you know, uh, these KGB operatives looking to overthrow the Russian government. And now we have um, Putin, an ex-KGB operative in charge of an undemocratic Russian government. So one could almost say that Pinkwater and his gang achieved their goals. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, uh, oh. 20, 26 years later and it's like, well, hey, they, they got what they wanted, you know. Maybe there's a real-life version of Terminal Velocity with Putin shirtless on a horse, jumping out of a plane. Yeah, that's right. And some <laughs> some some male stripper named Ditch Davy or whatever his name is. No, not Ditch Davy. That's an Australian actor. Ditch Brody <laughs> was like, "Oh, you can't do that." And and Putin was just like, "What are you going to do about it?" And just judo judo chopped him. And it is funny, actually, given the power of and that was the end of it. Russia right now to watch this film set in 1994, where they're just so cocky that Russia has fallen over at this point in time. And there's a line where she says, I'm from the KGB. And doesn't Charlie Sheen's character respond, you mean the KG has been or something like that? Some sort of play on the word B. But it's really this attitude of, yeah, Russia, the Cold War is over. You lost. Um, we're in a different time right now, a different time. I mean, even the the whole premise, the whole concept behind these KGB agents is that she lost her job. Like she was sacked, which you would never have had in a James Bond film in the 60s and 70s or in a film now featuring Russia as antagonist, the idea that a KGB agent was just sacked, like, just let go, four weeks' notice, take your pop plan and your coffee cup and leave. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. They should have just kicked around and they could have joined the FSB, you know, three and a half weeks later. Like, <laughs> uh, um, Okay, let's switch lanes to our review of Drop Zone. Okay, tell me what you liked and what grinded your gears and did it do a better version of the same concept than Terminal Velocity? Uh, I, I don't mind this movie. It's fine. Uh, I feel like, yeah, I, I, for me, it's a much less engaging premise, I guess, even though it sort of, um, uh, has a sort of better forward momentum or something, you know, Wesley Snipes has a very clear goal. Um, I don't know. It just seems a bit less, 
it just seems a little bit more rote or a little bit more standard. But um, what do you describe the concept which wasn't revealed in the IMDb synopsis as to what is the actual nature of the crime they commit? So I guess also like Terminal Velocity, Drop Zone has a pretty good opening sequence, right? Like the 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 Gary Busey, <laughs> fucking awesome, um, and his gang kidnap Michael Jeter's character who is a hacker and they parachute out of a jet. And I think no one believes they could do it because the jet is too high. Is that it? Too high or too fast. I can't quite work it out. But basically it's something like that has never been done or only been done by, you know, high-tech armed forces specialists. Yeah, yeah. And I only asked because I was too high while I watched this movie. (laughs) So I can't really... and and so then Wesley Snipes, his his agent, his um, colleague, is killed. I think it's actually his brother on screen. I thought they were referring to. Oh, it's his actual brother. Well, they say brother, but I thought they were referring to it like you know, uh, black vernacular for my close mate. <laughs> That's the widest thing you've ever said. No, but no, but they, they do say brother, like <gasps> as in like that that usage. I th- I think I think they're referring to the black vernacular for my close mate. Yes. No, but God damn it. Say it in white Australian. <laughs> He's killed my close mate. <laughs> but then they keep they keep saying it in a way which makes me think, yeah, I'm looking at the credits right now. He's got the same name. And it's Pete Pete Nessip and Terry Nessip. Oh yeah, Terry Nessip. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so he's his literal brother. So yeah, this is why it's confusing because they're literal brothers, but they're both uh, cops, are they? And they're doing a job together. That just seems unnecessarily confusing. Like he's basically motivated. I want you to finish off the synopsis and. Well, that explains his motivation, basically. Oh well, I mean that's that's it, isn't it? He thinks that. Um, there's more to this than it seems and, you know, he then has to go and investigate skydivers to find these people. It's kind of like um, Point Break in a way, isn't it? Like, oh, the only people capable of this are, you know, these extreme sports persons who he now has to try and infiltrate Um, and he does that by being a dork. (laughs) Look, it's totally inspired by Point Break. I feel this is like very much looking at the success of Point Break and saying let's do that again. Uh, but let's try and do it badly, which they succeeded in doing. <laughs> but it is weird, right? As a char- as a character motivation, there's no need for these two guys to be actual brothers. Like there are plenty of movies where a cop loses his partner, as in a fellow cop, at the start of a movie, and now he's motivated for personal reasons to try and catch the baddies. That's enough. They don't need to be cops who are working together and brothers. It just sort of is a hat on a hat. So... Well, Ben, that's because you didn't see the prequel. Brother cops, cop brothers, <laughs> you know. They're cops and they're brothers. Actually, there is a couple of great late 1980s shitty martial arts movies starring Jeff Wincott where that is the premise. Oh, really? So, wow. Okay. For people out there who like Jeff Wincott action movies. Huh? 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 Yeah, it's a very sub-sub-sub-genre. Yeah. Anyway. Um, what do you think though, right? I mentioned Point Break just then. Looking at this concept of the undercover cop who joins a group of extreme sports enthusiasts to catch a group of robbers, exactly the same premise as Point Break. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, you've got parachuting, right? That's that's your shtick. How does it compare to terminal velocity in taking advantage of parachuting as being the backbone of the story? Like do they lean in hard enough and get their parachuting value for dollar? Well, I suppose having a character in drop zone who is foreign to the um, subculture is an easier way in for the audience. You know, we 
we can experience uh, the trials and tribulations of you might be a super cop, but boy, are you a super shit skydiver. So we can we can go on that journey as he trains, you know, whereas I suppose in terminal velocity, the skydiver is already super awesome. Um, so, you know, it's kind of interesting in that way. I mean, you and I both like movies about sort of sub, like interesting subcultures, you know, like it is it is fun to see, oh, he goes to like skydiving bars, which I presume are things, you know, and they have their little routines and um, um, uh, what do you call them? Like, uh, um, you mean like their, their, their tics or their little traits that kind of characterise that subculture as being particularly unique? Yeah, you know, they, they, they ring the bell and everyone stands up and says a thing. It's like, what does that mean? And it means someone's dead. You know, um, I, I love that stuff. You know, yeah, I, I really love it. Like, I always almost do like a little golf clap for the screenwriter. Like, oh, well researched, sir. Well played. Well played. Like, yeah, totally. It's really. It just sort of infuses the subculture with a real sense of um, absolutely um, specific place and time. You know, a movie that does that exceptionally well is all um, the right stuff. You know, which has a sort of similar scene where a woman goes to like the, you know, uh, the, the. Airman bar, and she's like, who are all those pictures on the wall? And they're like, those are the guys who died. They're test pilots and they're dead. And it's like, oh. But it's really interesting, you know. Um, I also like in those CIA films, like I can't recall which one, but maybe it's a Bourne film where you've got like the wall at, mm. at Langley, CIA headquarters, and you had that wall with just the stars. Yeah. Which are for the spies that have died, but they can't name the spies. And so you just see this whole wall full of like, Gold stars, which gives you a great sense of scale as to how many people have given their lives to be a spy. Yeah, totally. Um, and and you know we've talked about it before. We like um, vernacular specific to the subculture that we might not understand exactly what they're saying, but it sounds cool, you know. And that's a really important detail, isn't it? As we're discussing this right now, the inversion of these two characters, Snipes being a newbie to the subculture, and he's our leading character. He's our Johnny Utah from Point Break walking us through this new world versus the Charlie Sheen character who's already the expert and even though he's the protagonist and we're sort of following him and he's discovering KGB crime at the same time, he's more like Liam Neeson. He already has a specific set of skills. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Of sorts. Yeah, totally. Including wearing chaps. <laughs> totally. I mean, I suppose Wesley Snipes has a specific set of skills, which is like Karate, you know, because like the the skydivers, the skydivers like ah, who's this dork just sitting alone in the skydiving bar? Let's mess him up, and then he's like aha, but I know karate. Actually, can I make a make a point just there? Watching this film and then watching Demolition Man recently. So I watched Demolition Man this film in the last three months, and it's the same year. So Wesley Snipes is at his kick-ass best. In fact, I watched Blade shortly before that, and what I've realised watching him in these movies is that. A, we discussed before how editors and cinematographers and second unit and directors basically got on board the idea of let's just let these actors fight in a wide shot because someone like Wesley Snipes is so good at it. Don't mm. tear it apart with fast cuts and lose a sense of geography. Like, let it play out. That's what he's good at. And don't try and, you know, swish the camera left and right and miss that detail. So that's interesting evolution as to how to capture really effective, immersive action scenes. However, I can see why films like Bourne, and Bourne kind of really kicked this off, these films around the early 2000s started trying to search for these really obscure martial arts from around the world that weren't judo, (laughs) not karate, not taekwondo. And the reason why is because 
it kind of looks ridiculous. When you're doing like moves which involve big knees and kicks and stuff in little tight quarters, like in this case, Wesley Snipes takes out two guys in a kind of really crappy, small, congested toilet. It's it's it kind of looks silly, but you can see why in Bourne they took on that, I think it's that Israeli or Thai form of martial fighting called Kravali or something. We've mentioned it before. No, Krav Magra. Krav Magra, where it's basically close quarters combat where- Yeah, it's Mossad. You don't have time to do a roundhouse kick like Van Damme or pull your arm back for a huge punch. You've got to basically do really close quarters moves and use objects around you to assist you. So it's much more naturalistic and it's more contained. Much more boring. Yeah. Much more boring. Like, man, like, dude, if you can if you can do a roundhouse kick, <laughs> drop into the splits, then hit someone hard in the nuts, that's fucking cinema, baby. That's cinema. You know, some fast cut thing where you're like slapping someone with a newspaper, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> you know, though, it's the ultimate trifecta when you have the splits, the roundhouse, and then it's basically the reverse Jackie Chan. Rather than taking the pose at the start of the fight, you do the whole move and then do the pose at the end of the fight. Yeah, it's amazing. It's the it's the 90s, 80s martial arts version of the Iron Man landing pose. You know, it's very kind of choreographed oh. and then the camera just sort of slowly uh, dollies in or dollies out from that manoeuvre and they're just kind of like catching their breath, looking around at the devastation. Do you think there's ever been a movie where Wesley Snipes hasn't played a character that can do karate? Like he was in, he was in like a movie... Like what? Um, one night stand, like a Mike Figgis directed drama, you know, which is <laughs> a serious movie. And, and like on set one day, do you reckon he was like, "Hey, Mike, hey, Mike, in this scene, maybe I could do a little bit of like a karate clinic," you know? And he's like, "What do you mean? You're like playing an ad exec or something?" He's like, "Yeah, but maybe I know karate. I could just, I could just do a little roundhouse kick here." As like, you know, why not? Why not? It just imbues the character with, you know, <laughs> with some sort of je ne sais quoi. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, look, it is odd. So I, I guess in that sense, even though he's a newbie, he still has skills. Yeah, yeah. I have to say, I don't actually even think the fights are particularly well covered in Drop Zone, even with an actor who has three black belts in karate, taekwondo and another one. Um, it's still fairly averagely shot. Like the fights aren't particularly well shot, you know. Um, oh, to be clear, I wasn't congratulating this film and Demolition Man, for example, as being great examples of how to cover Wesley Snipes fighting. The opposite is that they used to shoot and edit these movies for people who couldn't fight and they learned, I think, in the preceding or the subsequent 10 years to actually just pull the camera back and give wider coverage. This film, it's pretty jerky. Like, you don't get a great sense of um, tension between the characters fighting, do you, and a sense as to where... Each fighter is. It feels like he's taking out one person, the other person's just there holding a knife, waiting like a kung, mo- kung fu movie to jump in and then try to attack him. And he deals with that guy and the other guys waiting, waiting to jump in and attack him from behind. It's pretty silly. Can, can I also make a really dumb observation? I was so confused in Drop Zone because Wesley Snipes joins with Yancey Butler's character who will teach him how to skydive. Gary Busey is like an ex-DA agent with his own crew of like, you know, um, skydiving rascals. But they have a woman on their crew who I kept thinking was Yancey Butler's character. I hear you. It was terrible casting. They've cast these two women who look exactly the same. And I was like, is she undercut? Like, 
I just couldn't figure it out. Is she both undercover in Gary Busey's thing and simultaneously teaching Wesley Snipes this shit? I What the fuck? Gabe, you totally nailed it. It was a terrible, terrible casting decision. Like, this is casting 101. Do not cast two actors that look almost the same as each other. But it made, it's made worse in these movies because they're often wearing, like, parachuting gear, like goggles or something, which partly obscures any unique details they have on their face, which means it's even harder to decipher one character from the other. And halfway through the movie, I was, like, asking the question, are these two different characters or the same character? Which therefore made it hard to understand whose allegiance was with who. Yeah, it, I, I'm glad I'm not alone in this. It, it was very confusing for me. I mean, you know, obviously you know uh, who Wesley Snipes is and who Gary Busey is. They're they're icons. But yeah, I don't know the other the other guys. Just no good, no good. It was very very confusing. Um, the one detail you left out before, Gabe, is the nature of the heist, and that is they kidnapped this tech guy, this hacker with the objective of landing on sky rises to then infiltrate the building to then try and steal <laughs> a basically a knock list, but it's a DEA list of all of the undercover agents to then sell. That's actually a, a good idea as in terms of how to break into buildings. It's a very high concept and a bit silly, but mm. it's fun. Like it involves the best of skydiving, I think. If you land on a really small strip of building rooftop, which is probably easier to break in from the top than break in from the bottom. And then what they actually are stealing is actually something worth selling. So at that level, I think it's a good thing to steal and it's a good way to steal it. And I think it does take advantage of parachuting because when they then steal that data, they then jump off again to do one of those like low jumps. And the opening scene has them then land remarkably in an open moving dump truck as they then sort of speed off into the sunset. That's cool. Like, it wasn't the best way to shoot or cover the scene, the action sequence, but it was a great idea for an action sequence. And as a concept for a movie, to me that's a much more interesting premise than Terminal Velocity. Right. You're right, though. It does use the the skydiving. And I think, look, to be fair to both, movie, both movies, they do manage to get a lot of ways to... You know, even when it just comes to killing off their main villains, you know, they're all skydiving related. And I respect that. I do it too. Like, I love the idea that both movies uh, use that trick where they, someone will grab the shoot ripcord and pull it on someone else. Yeah. And then I'll get sucked backwards. So they're actually on, on land or something like that. And I think Terminal Velocity has the best example of that where I think it's Gandolfini's character is fighting against... Charlie Sheen and Charlie Sheen pulls the ripcord and he gets sucked into a wind farm spinning propeller. Great idea. Turbine. Turbine. Yeah, it's, that's good. That's good. I, I have to say it's not as good as Gary Busey going out the window um, with Wesley Snipes and then somehow falling at an angle where he goes through the front windscreen that's bizarre. of a truck. It's amazing. It is Fucking cherry. It is so good, Gary Busey's death scene in this. And next, even after he lands in there, it's not even clear if he's dead. It's like, did he survive that? Is he going to be back? Like, will they have, like, a fourth act, you know, which is just like, fuck, Gary Busey went out a window through a windscreen and he's fine. I mean, Gary Busey in real life, like, went off motorbikes and landed on his head and that's probably how Gary Busey was born. I would believe that his character, Ty Moncrief, could survive that. Um, um Actually, we should discuss some of the 
plot points in addition to that one of Drop Zone. So um, just some of the crazy ideas. So the start of this film, when Wesley Snipes does a lesson for parachuting, the woman pushes him out of a plane without a parachute as a gag oh, to yeah. then rescue him. Like, yeah. it's just ludicrous, right? That, that is, you would be furious. I mean, and Wesley Snipes' character is angry. I mean, that's, you'd, you'd fucking sue the shit out of him. I mean, <laughs> totally. that could go so bad. Like, and because he's just sitting there and they're like, hit a button. And then Yancey Butler turns to Grace the Brisky's character and is like, oh, shenanigans. I call shenanigans. <laughs> it's like, that's fucking, like, like, and she, the only reason she can catch him is because, you know, all skydiving movies do that thing where you like, you point your body in such a way that you go super fast. Yeah, that's you know? right. And then catch them like Xena on a top with your thighs. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so she can obviously catch up to him. Do, do you think she does this to everyone who gets in a, a plane? Like, donk, wee. You know. It is weird that he's sitting exactly on the drop, uh, the trap door. By the way, I've never seen a movie where planes have trap doors like that. It seems very unnecessary. Like, don't you normally jump out the side? Like, why does that plane have a trap door directly below him? Anywho, like, unless you're like a World War II bombing plane, it seems like an expense not worth installing. And it is odd, too, that when he does fall, she does a lot of those kind of like, oh, SpaghettiOs yeah. to the pilot for quite a while. Oh, like, yeah. They're, they're she's not in a, a hurry to chase. <laughs> the pilot at one point is like, you better go get him. She's like, oh, yeah, that's right. I, I, th- <laughs> I threw a guy out of a plane. Fuck. <laughs> and then what I love is, so- you mentioned before how in real life none of the actors except for one actor, uh, the hacker guy we'll get to, from Drop Zone did the actual skydiving. But in these movies, people learn to skydive in a day. Like they don't start with a tandem jump. They just learn in a day. And on Wesley Snipes' first dive, he's inexplicitly doing acrobatics with the team, which I don't understand anyway. So I, I wonder though, Ben, yeah. I wonder if someone said, hey, Wesley Snipes, ordinarily your first skydive would be tandem. And he's like, fuck that, I'm a tough guy. I'm not doing no tandem shit. Like a homophobic they, kind of maybe, remark you or know, something. Yeah. Uh, and they had to figure, yeah, it was 1994 after all. They'd just be throwing that shit around. Um, and they had to figure out a way to not, and I'm doing air quotes, emasculate his otherwise tough cop character by having him strapped to a woman on his first skydive. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. And that's the funny thing where that's inverted in Terminal Velocity where she's very much the active, tough protagonist and he's sort of like the traditional damsel in distress. So I, I think that sort of matches well Charlie Sheen's performance where he's basically subverting the trope of this action film, whereas Wesley Snipes ain't into any of that kind of piss-taking at no, all. He's, the, he's a tough guy. He is the trope, but... Um, yeah. Can I ask you another thing, by the way? Um, why is Gary Busey's team in the competition? It seems, like, unnecessary. <laughs> like, Gary Busey's team is a great idea. We've got this hacker. We land on the buildings of high-tech police stations <laughs> and we steal their data, right? Uh, there doesn't seem to be great. any need at all to be in a competition. It seems like, to be drawing unnecessary attention oh, man. to your covert activities. Like, imagine if imagine if Heat, which is already three hours long, had a 30-minute side plot where Vincent Hanna and um, <laughs> Neil McCauley were also in a paintball tournament. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and they're like, you know, and then the final sequence like, actually happens on the paintball course. They're like, oh, it's come to this, has it? Yeah, you know? that's right. Yeah, exactly. I, I think what's meant to happen is in the final sequence, there is a jump 
on the 4th of July or something and our antagonists don't jump out of the plane and carry on to do their robbery at nighttime elsewhere. So I think the competition's intended to be a cover for their ultimate heist. But again, it seems entirely unnecessary to do that. They could just jump out of a plane elsewhere in the sky that night. That's not, they don't have to just be part of this competition for these acrobatics. So that's odd. And also, they're very happy to get rid of people, aren't they? Like they're not a loyal team. The villains? Yeah. Oh, they keep shoving people into power lines. Yeah, that's right. Like they seem to be drawing a lot of attention to themselves and Gary Busey does it because he thinks one of the characters is perhaps a bit of a weak link. This guy, to be fair, I mean, we've seen other characters do much, much worse things in the past and stay as part of the team. Like Wayne Grow had to go in heat, speaking of heat. Mm. But I didn't feel it was necessary to kill off this guy just for a slight error. I just thought he deserved a second chance to, you know, share in the glory of the winnings. So that, that's just me. I mean, I lead my criminal teams in a different way. Well, what action movie of the period didn't have a sequence where an obstinate henchman was, you know, uh, killed by the villains so as to prove their ruthlessness? I mean, it's a, it's a classic, classic move. Exactly. Speaking of classic moves, how about the henchmen wearing Hawaiian shirts and holding M15s? <laughs> yeah. Classic oh, 90s. <laughs> uh, both of these movies are very 90s. Just to talk about, uh, just very quickly, the scores for both movies oh. have sick guitars. It's just like every every moment when someone skydives, you know they were sitting in the in the mix or uh, in the re- recording studio with the various composers and they're like, bro, just do something radical. And he's like, how about this? It's like, that's the fucking shit, man. See, this is the thing. I think Michael Bay saw both these movies and he, th- and he saw like the falling car and he saw the parachuting and he heard that music and thought, uh-huh, I found my influence. I will elevate this to greater heights. I will make it recognisable and I will stand on the shoulders of not-so-greats and be the greatest cliche. And he was. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, the... The action movies that came out after this, and I guess these are probably mid, you know, these are mid-tier action movies, not super high-end ones. But, yeah, I mean, the guitars in um, his movies or Simon West's Con Air are much, much, much better. You know, the Con Air score is iconic. <laughs> like, uh, Actually, speaking of uh, 90s references, did you catch the I'll Be Back Terminator reference? Oh, uh, yeah. Doesn't, who says that? Yancey Butler's character? Or is it? Yeah, I think so. Oh, no, the old lady. Grace Zabriskie. Yeah, Grace. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, okay. I think we'd have to agree that if you're talking about making the most of a concept of parachuting that Drop Zone does because it actually features as part of a heist, you can actually remove parachuting from terminal velocity and nothing would change. They're just trying to steal gold out of planes on the ground. So it's not really integral to the plot in the same way. But I'd say the action sequences and terminal velocity are better. Yeah, yeah. So I'm interested, Ben, because at the at the top of this podcast, it really seemed like you would be, you know, um, fucking these movies gently with a chainsaw and absolutely shredding them. But I don't hear a lot of shredding. Yeah, this is the thing, though. I did say, I did put the caveat that I'd have a great time talking about the movies, but I didn't have a great time watching the movies. I mean, the biggest problem I've got with Terminal Velocity is it's inconsistent. Like, as I said before, it's Charlie Sheen doing hot shots in this movie. It's Shooter McGavin doing hot shots times 10. He doesn't know what it is, and the parachuting isn't integral to the story. Um, 
I was basically bored. It's sort of funny. I think with cinema language these days, you can tell a story increasingly more succinctly because just with time, we accept it. Like think about as an editor, you'd appreciate, right, how we can absorb more cuts in a movie, Mm. like a cut every two seconds or one second. In older movies, you'd have a cut every 10 seconds. Like I feel these films are just kind of like slow and they weren't original enough in concept. I mean, basically they came in the wake of Point Break but didn't elevate beyond Point Break and they weren't the first across the line like Point Break and they didn't add anything to it. Like you can be another version of Point Break. It's called The Fast and Furious, but you've got to do something different and better. And we'd already seen parachuting in Point Break done better. So it's like, eh, like give me something new. I mean, my biggest surprise is that no one did a Fast and Furious film sooner. Like it took that long. It took like nine years or 10 years to do the same concept. I'm just so surprised if you're going to do these two films only three years after Point Break, which means they'll probably written two, two years before, one year after Point Break, just take the concept and just add a different extreme sport. Do something and then raise the stakes, like do better stunts. So I'm, I'm, I'm tired, Gabe. I'm you're tired. tired. I, I mean, I, I'm t- as, in like, as in like these films just tired me and depress me that I don't even feel like I want to tear them up because they are what they are. Like they're not so bad, they're great. And I never watch movies like The Room or whatever where it's so good, it's great. Like a guilty pleasure for me has to be a movie that I think is made brilliantly but isn't appreciated by others. These films are neither of those things. I mean, it's interesting that you say, oh, it took so long to do Fast and the Furious again, because Charlie Sheen, in what year was Beyond the Law, that one where he's the, you know, undercover cop who joins the bikies? Oh, that was around 1990, I think, wasn't it? 1990, 92, 93. Oh, okay, so it was just after point. No, 1993. Okay. Yeah, so it's like- so it's Two like, years uh, after, yeah. Obviously that doesn't have the extreme sports thing, but- you know, Charlie Sheen's been remaking. Um, he's been remaking Point Break again and again. Just, just, just never struck that Fast and Furious gold. Actually, you and I talk about subcultures, and we've talked about bikies before. And yeah, essentially, what's it called again? Under the Law or something? Oh, be- Beyond the Law. Beyond, beyond the, the law. law with Charlie Sheen. So there you go. That was made two years after Point Break. Same concept. An undercover cop joins a interesting subculture. In this case, bikies. The thing is, though, is that bikies aren't cool. They weren't cool then. And they're kind of dirty. It's, I mean, that concept is more like someone joining an undercover, being undercover with a group of other criminals like bank robbers or something that hang out, you know, like the mafia, like the mafia, for example. Well, hey, Ben, Ben, wait till you hear my pitch about an undercover cop who joins a gang of furries to commit a, a string of highline uh, robberies coinciding with furry conventions. Oh, I like it. And are they having sex with their masks on? I suppose they are. Uh, I, I guess. Okay. I guess there's, isn't there a whole sort of porn subculture of that? I don't know enough about that. I, I, I just like the imagery. Okay, maybe they're bronies then. An undercover cop joins a gang of bronies. What are bronies? They're, they're men who collect My Little Ponies. Oh, my God. So they're bros who collect ponies. Well, I guess so. And look, I'm, I'm not here to shame people who. No, I'll do that for you. Okay, fine. You do that. I'm going to go out there and make fucking big bucks with my pitch. (laughs) I've got to say, the concept, this is the pitch, right? It's where the wild things are meets heat. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, totally, you know. Um, I mean, you could kind of do it with like a, an undercover cho- cop joins like, I don't know, the WWE, you know, an undercover cop, like, like just pick a, pick a fun subculture. Yeah, again, I'm so surprised it hasn't, hasn't been done more because even though The Fast and the Furious, which I actually watched, by the way, by sheer coincidence two nights ago with my two sons who are probably too young for it, um, and it's one of the first kind of adult-ish films I've shown them besides Star Wars and Marvel movies. And I've got to say, it's actually a very safe film to watch with kids. It's so chaste, right? Besides a few booty shots, there's no coarse language, no sex, no nudity, not many guns. It's mainly stunts and occasional punching. Right. Whereas most movies have people being shot and killed. Those movies actually have a very low death count. And it's mainly just lots of stunts involving cars, which means it's actually quite accessible to people who don't like violence or sex or nudity or coarse yeah. language. You're right. <laughs> or You're drugs. Right. I guess my furry thing doesn't get those four quadrants, even though the poster would make it appear like it would be a film for the whole family. Like Death to Smoochie. Exactly. It's a Death to Smoochie kind of indie Sundance movie where you have basically a Care Bear-like character holding a machine gun on a poster and the other Care Bears behind with bags of money over their shoulder. (laughs) Oh, with money. Okay. Um, um, And then then, then the trailer, there's like, you know, slow motion at like 120 frames per second of all these Care Bears kind of like doing drugs, drinking, in costume, and like a bit like that's those sequences you see with the gambling in Locks on Two Smoking Barrels and basically just sort of like, you know, throwing money in the air, rolling on beds of money, you know, kissing, doing drugs. It'd be so cool, so different, it might actually work. Um, ben, I fear you may well have pissed off the furry community by referring to them as Care Bears. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to say, if you're going to go and try and I, – I have nothing to do with this. That's Ben's words, <laughs> not mine. All right, let's do a quick combined review. So notable similarities, coincidence or ripoff. Um, I would say the biggest coincidence in these films is 90s big acting. Uh, anything else? I mean – The parachuting isn't integrated enough and the characters are kind of swapped, as we discussed before. I mean, everyone everyone is doing big acting, aren't they? I mean, Wesley Snipes is actually, I suppose, playing it fairly straight in a movie where, you know, Gary Busey and, um, you know, Michael Jeter, who plays the, um, the, the, the hacker that they kidnap, who's doing some sort of Cajun accent. Maybe that's his real accent. I'm not, I'm not sure, but I like it. Um, he does his own stunt and jumps out of the plane. It's a really unexpected shot when you you see it because he, the actor, is almost the 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 character in the film you'd least expect to be doing their own stunts. You know, um, he's forty two. He looks sixty two. He's got terrible balding hair. He's a bit overweight. He's short. He's unathletic. Totally, he's the guy you least expect to actually do real skydiving. Yeah, that's right, and it's really cool. Um, so. So, but he's also he he also dials his character to eleven. You know, he makes some good big choices. Actually, while we're on it, I have to say I really don't like the ending of Drop Zone, where spoilers: Gary Busey's been killed, Wesley Snipes has uh, saved the day, but they do that kind of Garland Green Con Air thing. I mean, Michael Jeter's character is not like a serial, like a, a good time serial murderer who wore some girl's head as a hat, but you know, he's 
He's morally grey. He's been kidnapped by the villains. So he puts on a DEA jacket and is sort of making his getaway. And you're like, oh, that's kind of sweet. They've let him get away. And then this fucking asshole skydiver jumps off a building and tackles him. And Wesley Snipes like, yeah, gotcha. And you're like, you fuckwits. You assholes. You should have yeah, let him get away. I agree, yeah. particularly when they characterise him at the start of the movie in a sympathetic way that you actually feel sorry for him. And he sort of oh. feels like the, the hacker who is a baddie but not a baddie. Ah, oh, it really ends the film on a sour note for me. I was kind of really pleased. I couldn't remember that bit at the end. I was like, oh, that's really nice that they're letting Jeter's character get away. Nah, nah, they have to be fucking super cops. Fucking assholes. <laughs> you know, the skydiving guy isn't even a cop. He's barely involved. He did himself a murder up the top when he killed some guy. Isn't that enough for you, mate? Relax. <laughs> All right, let's... Uh Tie bow and arrow reviews. Which film has aged better? Neither. <laughs> They've aged terribly. Look, I would say that Terminal Velocity has aged worse because of Charlie Sheen's acting performance. Two nineties. Okay, fair. Although I have to say, if I was to watch one of these movies again, I'd probably watch Terminal Velocity again. I, I hear you. Uh, potholes and missed opportunities. Could they have done anything better with the high concept of parachuting and heists? Yeah, they could have made Point Break. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's jump to some trivia then, some behind the scenes. Um, little did you know, and you kind of kind of stepped on it a bit early, Gabe, but that's okay. Sorry. That Michael Jetta did his own stunts during the scene where we see him uh, going out in a tandem jump. But he was actually in a tandem jump, so it's not like he was actually pulling the ripcord himself. Yeah, it was more than – it's still more than Charlie Sheen and Wesley Snipes did. Yeah, I know. I guess so. Speaking of the actors, casting woulda, shoulda, couldas, who else might have ended up in these movies – so get this, starting with Terminal Velocity, Tom Cruise, Michael Douglas and uh, Nicolas Cage were all considered for the leading role of Ditch Brody. Wait, I mean, Tom Cruise, sure, I could see that and Nick Cage, but isn't Michael Douglas, I don't, I can't imagine that. I mean, his, he never did this sort of straightforward action movie. His persona was always, you know, cokehead, sleazebag, Fuck machine. Yeah, but you know that swagger he does nude with his butt jiggling in the uh, in the moonlight in uh, Basic Instinct two or three years before. Do I? The directors would have said, "Hey, he'd fill the chaps, the buttless chaps, perfectly in the opening sequence to Terminal Velocity." Boom. True. And then I and ironically they cast an actor who's actually closer to the Michael Douglas on-screen persona <laughs> as this guy because I'm sure Charlie Sheen was you know, doing mounds of cocaine at this point in his oh, life. All, yeah. all of the press reports indicate that. That's right. I mean, his head in this movie looks like it's got coke bloat. <laughs> coke bloat. Um, now, speaking of, uh, well, not speaking of coke bloat, but drop zone, apparently Steven Seagal was originally set to play the Wesley Snipes character, but he left the project to return as Navy SEAL Casey Rayback in Under Siege 2 Dark Territory. He was actually offered $15 million to star in Drop Zone. Wow. Uh, uh, I mean, he made the right choice. Under Siege 2 is pretty good. Yeah, I, that's on the, on the train, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Bit safer on the train than in the sky. Uh, Andy Garcia apparently turned down the role of Tom. Wait, dude, no. Under Siege 1 is set on the boat. What are you talking about? <laughs> no, he, he, he took $15 million. Oh, sorry. Oh, I see. To go back to Under Siege 2. I get it. My mistake. I apologise. Yeah, no. Uh, Andy Garcia turned down the role of Ty Moncrief, which was ultimately played by 
Gary Busey, mm. and Ellen Barkin was considered for the role of Jesse Crossman. Oh, yeah. So different movie. Imagine having Steven Seagal, Andy Garcia, and Ellen Barkin all in the same movie. Better movie, worst movie? I'd like to see that movie. I mean... It's a different movie. I, oh, yeah. I, I think Gary Busey is great in this role. I mean, Andy Garcia is a better actor than Gary Busey, you know, but Gary Busey just brings that, you know, insane shit he does. Um, where whenever I see him in these movies from the 90s, I always go, oh, I really miss him in movies, although I presume that he has is a complete basket case now and, you know, it's just totally unfilmable or something. There must be something going on there. Yeah, I, it is. it does seem, the way he's been characterised on TV shows like Entourage is that he has had demons, so to speak. Um, yeah. Uh, spot the Aussie. I couldn't spot any, but there was the song The Stranger's Party by NXS played twice in Terminal Velocity. Wow, that's, that's a good one. I didn't spot an Aussie. That's a nice deep cut. Very well done. Very deep cut. Uh, okay, let's jump to the box office. Which, uh, which movie do you think was the box office champ? Uh, by champ, do you mean undercards fighting in... Uh, you know, featherweight divisions, like because oh, uh, the semantics! You're killing me. I can't Come imagine on. either. Of Which these one movies. made some serious coin? Made neither, the most coin. Neither made serious. Well, coin. One had to make more than the other. Okay, Drop Zone made more than Terminal Velocity. You got it. So Terminal Velocity opens first. It gets the advantage of the opening slot in September. It's made for fifty million. I'm sure they spent probably twenty million on that last action sequence. It makes only sixteen and a half million domestically and appears weirdly it wasn't released internationally at all so unfortunately it was a bomb and it didn't cut the lunch of drop zone opening three months later at christmas which cost a similar amount 45 million did almost 29 million uh domestically and also it appears wasn't released internationally either that can't be right i think these films must have been released internationally and at the time they just didn't record the box office for them. Yeah, totally. I mean, as I said at the very beginning, I don't recall seeing these at the movies, but I'm sure they were an option. Like, Yeah. Uh, I think these films basically slipped under the radar and made so little it's not recorded. And yeah, also, I mean, back in 94 when there probably wasn't the same sort of public awareness of the box office. Yeah, that's right. Maybe when they say they weren't released internationally, they just mean like Albania. <laughs> you know. Perhaps. <laughs> um, All right. Uh, Ron Tomatoes, which film do you think impressed the critics the most? More. Uh, uh, my guess would be Drop Zone again. Yeah, Drop Zone did 41% with the critics versus 20% for Terminal Velocity. So Oof. that was a turd. Have a guess which one the fans liked more. Again, I'm just going to go with Drop Zone. And you'd be right. Not by much. 31% by the audience and the audience gave 22% to Terminal Velocity. So both these films are dropped like a lead balloon. <laughs> oh, boom. <laughs> uh, yeah, Sam, insert uh, a chorus of size here. <laughs> yes, a huge chorus. <laughs> All right, let's jump to the awards. Uh, are you excited? Yeah. Do we want a drum roll or no drum roll for the awards? Yeah, let's 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 have some fanfare. I mean, I feel like there's some good okay. ones here. You know, these right. '90s movies always good for rewards. Okay, all right. So, what can we give any clues or hints to Sam as to what would be appropriate '90s fanfare for 
action turd for movies like this? Oh, it's got to be some sort of guitar, right, that that would be in keeping with the style of this, some giant guitar so lick. riffs, yeah, nice. Okay. Yeah. Guitar licks go it, right here. In fact, in fact... <laughs> In fact, I wouldn't be against the idea that this whole podcast is subtly scored with just that throughout the whole thing. Just after anyone says like, "Wow, wow," we see. Sam, sound editor Sam, that won't be required. <laughs> it, it is required. <laughs> All right, best title. Ah, oh, they're both good. They actually are both good, aren't they? Like, Fuck I don't yeah, think we've man. said that for a long time. I think both titles stand their own. I would say that terminal velocity probably conveys more about parachuting to the layperson and the, the use of terminal can also sound negative like dead. Uh, drop zone can sound more passive potentially, but they both sound pretty cool. I'm going to give it to terminal velocity by a lick. You're right. I think terminal velocity is better. Drop zone could refer to like a, you know, a, an 8th century privy on the side of a castle. That's the drop zone. That's where we go do... <laughs> Do our medieval turds. Um, <laughs> um, so, yes, Terminal Velocity. But I have to say both of these titles are cool. You know, like a 13-year-old me picking up these VHS like, fuck yeah, Drop Zone. Fuck yeah, Terminal Velocity. So your dad's there at the video store with you saying, Gabe, how was your day? Do you want to discuss your emotions? And you're like, no, I want a Drop Zone. Yeah, that's right. I want the Terminal Velocity. <laughs> that's right. I We can sit here and watch these movies in lieu of a uh, – you know, deep relationship. Thank you very much. That's all I need. <laughs> <laughs> okay, best poster. They're both pretty bad, aren't they? Should I describe it for the – actually, why don't you describe both of these posters? And if you've got a podcast app, listeners, you'll see I put both posters side by side so you can compare them. Uh, Gabe, describe both these posters well, to our podcast listeners. Well, like the titles, I guess Terminal Velocity conveys a better idea of what it is. It's two people uh, – skydiving, their parachutes haven't opened yet and they're desperately trying to grab one another as they fall uh, at sunset. And then it says Sheen and Kinski. And terminal velocity, the words, are side on, like... Oh, yeah, because they're going down. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's their problem. They, they, can't, they can't grab each other because a title is in the way. <laughs> Drop zone is just a giant shot of Wesley Snipes' head. It looks like a sniper film, doesn't it? It basically has oh, yeah. Wesley Snipes looking towards camera. Uh, it appears to be an explosion or the crosshairs of a gun, and there is a, no sense whatsoever that it involves any skydiving. No, no. Well, both movies have taglines that are pretty pretty not bad. So if you read the tagline, you go, ooh, okay, Wesley Snipes is staring at me. I'm intrigued. Something dangerous is in the air. Okay, that, that refers to... It could be skydiving. It could be just brutal farts. It could be any number of things. But Terminal Velocity's one, it's not the fall that kills you. That's sick. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think we've definitely got to give it to Terminal Velocity. Wow. So, so far, Terminal Velocity, despite being the box office flop and the critically maligned movie of the two, it's after two awards, is coming out on top. Oh, it's going to keep winning. It's going to it's going to clean up. <laughs> I'm telling you. Let's see how we go with the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after the American indie actors Billy Bob and Ben Affleck. Who got their big break in these twin movies, starting with Terminal Velocity? Mm, that's actually a good question. Um, hmm. I had the director. He'd made some stuff before, but I thought this was a step up for him. What? Darren Serafian. I mean. If we're talking about a an uh, 
and a, a performer who has come from the sort of more indie world. I mean, Natasha Kinski, she didn't do many action movies and, you know, before this, what had she been, what had she been doing? Um, I mean. Oh, she did a pretty big run there in the 90s. I guess this was a step up in relation to action. I think we're going to look at Drop Zone for this award. Right, okay. Anyone there you had in mind? I mean, I would have thought, who was the female character that played, was it Jessie? Yeah, Yancey Butler. This was a pretty big break for her, wasn't it? I mean, she had been in a couple of movies before in the 90s. I think it was like, wasn't she in No Way Out or something like that with Van Damme? Uh, Before this, she was in Hard Target. Hard Target. Which is sick. So I guess she had a big break there. I'm I, I'm going to vote, even though she'd been in 30 movies before this, I'm going to vote for Natasha Kinski, who, you know, who had come from being in incredible movies like Paris, Texas. But Paris, Texas has a shortage of skydiving stunts in it. <laughs> All right. Uh, Natasha, you get the Bill Fleck Big Break Award. Um, <laughs> there wasn't much competition. Okay, moving on to the Before They Were Famous or Blink and You'll Miss Them. All right, I've got a good one here, so I'll kick it off. Okay. Terminal Velocity, Brooke Langton plays Jump Junkie number two. Brooke Langton was Nikki in Swingers. You know the one he meets at the bar who eats all the olives and he calls her, John Favreau calls her on the phone and leaves like, umpteen messages and totally embarrasses himself. Okay. She also starred in Friday Night Lights, the TV series as well. So she's my nominee, but I also had John Badham, Badham, in Drop Zone, played the captain of a yacht in a small scene. Did he? So that, they're two pretty good contenders, I think. Oh, okay. Uh, I think they're pretty good. I didn't spot, you know, a a a, a young Zac Efron as child at fairground. So I think your ones are pretty good. Pretty good. All right. Brooke gets it. Moving on to the Tommy Lee Jones Show Stiller Award named after the iconic performance by said man in The Fugitive. Who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role starting with mm. Terminal Velocity? I feel like this is a crowded field. I mean, also in the uh, ham acting award that we'll get to. I feel there's going to be some overlap here. I had Kyle Secor playing Swoop. I thought he was really good. Like, Yeah, who is that bloke? What have I seen him in? I don't know. Uh, but I just thought him in Drop Zone was, it was such a small role, but I thought he was just quite charismatic. I wonder if- He played the uh, homeless bum slash uh, ultimate skydiver. Yeah, I wonder if he was one of those actors who was just always on the fringe of being, of breaking through as some kind of leading man, but it just sort of never, just never quite happened for Carl. Kyle, Carl, whatever his name is, you know? Well, it didn't help that all the casting agents confused his name for Carl. <laughs> Kyle, Carl, uh, Kyle. Do you have anyone else? Anyone from Terminal Velocity? Any nominees? Um, I mean, Melvin Van Peebles plays the, um, the uh, what is he? He's a plane-fixing guy. What do you call that? Aeronauticus. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Aero- so it's like you know, Kyle versus Melvin. Well, I mean, you know, when you've got the absolutely iconic actor, writer, director, producer of Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, you know, just in a, in a little role. I have a lot of respect for that. Okay. Um, this could be a dead rubber because I actually think that Kyle delivered more with less. So I'm sticking with Swoop. Okay. Well, I think an iconic 
pioneering African-American writer, director, producer does more than a bland, forgettable, almost ran white dude. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like, I don't know how you suddenly hashtag me into those awards. Oh, wow. Boom. That's right. That's right. Uh, somehow I got cancelled. Yeah, that's right. So now, Ben, now choose. <laughs> now you must choose. Uh, okay. I, I guess the director of um, Sweet, 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 is it, what, Sweet, Sweet Ass Hand. Dude, dude, Sweet, Sweet Back's Badass Song. I always I always lose track of how many sweets there are. There's, there's a couple. What is it? There's a couple. Okay. Anyway. All right, moving on. Uh, the Mickey Rourke Award, named in honour of the troubled actor who squandered his chance <laughs> to kick on with, kick on with bigger roles. Who didn't make the most of their opportunities after appearing in these movies? By the way, I like how you laugh at my description of this award. Despite this award being at least 20 podcast episodes old, it's only now that you actually laugh? No, I mean, I was laughing because I feel like you think that the answer is immediately obvious. You know, oh, well, it's clearly Charlie Sheen. You know, he, all of his problems and and lifestyle choices and but he didn't really squander shit he's probably got 500 million dollars he was the highest paid actor in the 2010s earning 1.8 million dollars per episode for two and a half men so he cleaned up he might have like then like lost it all after getting fired and then <laughs> you know did a short season on Anger Management, the TV series. But yeah. he kicked on, whereas Natasha Kinski, I don't think, took advantage of her opportunities. She kind of basically more or less vanished shortly after this movie. I mean, she's made things, but for someone who started in quite a few memorable movies around this era, I don't think she really kicked on. Yeah. The, the, the websites are never particularly um, reliable, but according to the internet, Popular Hollywood actor Charlie Sheen's net worth is estimated to be $10 million. How the fuck did he run, like, the amount of... Oh, I think we know how. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, like, look, I'm not exactly sure what cocaine costs per gram in America. Um, uh, and I'm sure he'd be buying enough of it that he would be buying it in bulk. He would have had to have done metric shit tons of cocaine. So he's got two ex-wives. He has between four and five children. Um, he's playing alimony there for two or three times. It, I could just imagine he just would spend it in a crazy way, not just drugs but, like, bad investments and I'm sure everyone gets their cut. He has all those – he's had a history of living with about, like, ten porn stars. Um, right. Who knows? It, it's mysterious. I mean, remember that when that, uh, that Madame Heidi Fleiss – was revealed to be this sort of influential figure in Hollywood and they revealed how much money her clients charge per hour. It was like $10,000. Right. So your Tom Sizemore's, your Charlie Sheen's, if they were involved in that sort of stuff, that would pretty quickly add up. Well, I think Tom Sizemore probably got a discount because he was in a relationship with Heidi Fleiss. <laughs> That's right. Is it well, like, perhaps like a, like a sort of like a Qantas deal where you pay 10%? Yeah, that's right. As an employee, yeah. Um, anyway, um, look, they spend a lot of money on sex workers and that's fine. That's their prerogative. If that's what they want to do, no judgments. Getting back to the Mickey Rourke Award, um, can I put forward a drop zone contender? Go. Yancey Butler, who played Jesse Crossman, the yeah. other main character. I'd never seen her before this movie. I've never seen her since. How can you star opposite Wesley Snipes in 1994 in a $45 billion budgeted movie 
that's going to get a lot of bums on seats. It didn't do as well as it could have. But nonetheless, people have kicked on with much worse opening films than this one. And she seems to have just vanished. Yeah. Yeah, what what did she do after this? I sense you scrolling through IMDb now as I feel the airwaves to try and uh, well, fill the gap. <laughs> no, well, you know, so, sometimes I can, uh, I can just, I have a unique ability to remember the filmographies of even the most, you know, weird film players. But, yeah, Yancey, couldn't tell you. Couldn't tell you. It's a, lot of t- it's a lot of TV. She's done actually a lot of stuff. Yeah, a lot of TV. She has 55 credits. That includes a lot of episodes on TV. But besides Kick-Ass in 2010 and Kick-Ass 2 in 2013, she hasn't really done anything on the big screen, which is quite surprising. No. Well, well Ben, I'm going to go watch the... I'll go watch the Lake Placid sequels and I'll get back to you. <laughs> All right. I think Yancey gets it. Yeah, give it to give it to Yancey. All right. Moving on to the Winner Winner Chicken Dinner Award. Who came out on top in each of these movies, starting with Terminal? Hmm. I mean, given that did anyone come out on top of these? I mean I don't think anyone did. I mean, maybe I was gonna say the screenwriter David Toy. May, but he'd already done The Fugitive before. So he's already doing very well. So I don't think it's him. Um, maybe Gandolfini was sort of like making the most of his opportunities after True Romance to then kick on to bigger opportunities like Crimson Tide. Mm. So I guess he was building a pretty impressive filmography, but no one jumps out. It's interesting that this was Gandolfini's like, you know, fourth movie or something. Yeah, I know. I mean, that's quite remarkable. And he looks like, you know, he's made 100 movies. Like, he receded pretty early. Like, I think he aged faster than average. Um, how about, and perhaps this guy should be have been up there for the Mickey Rourke Award instead, Malcolm Jamal Warner playing Terry Nessip, as previously discussed, mm. the on-screen brother of Wesley Snipes, he of Theo Huxtable in The Cosby Show. Uh, I didn't. What's the Cosby show? I'm too young for that, mate. No. Is, is Theo Huxtable like a main character? Yeah, he's like the, the son. He's like the son in a family of daughters and, you know, he's a bit goofy, not the brightest, you know, guy in the family. But, you know, the Cosby show was huge. Uh, oh, sure. So I guess he could have been a Mickey Rourke nominee. I guess this, this was his first big opportunity after being on a TV series. Look, I'm really struggling here for any nominees yet alone a winner. What's the award again? I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always asking this. The memory of a goldfish. <laughs> the winner, winner, chicken dinner award. Oh, yeah. No one came. No one. Okay. Nobody. All right. Nobody. Sorry, folks. A dead rubber. Mike, Michael Jeter. He got to skydive. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, best dialogue award. Okay. Okay. Oh, I've been dreading this. Oh, I can't do it. It's so hard. You can't. I can't do it, Gabe. This is like there are so many cheesy lines that Charlie Sheen has in Terminal Velocity and it's so confusing to me because it's a film that's meant to be a PG-13 film. But, man, why don't you just please, for the benefit of our podcast listeners, reiterate some of the perlers that Charlie Sheen delivers in this film. You mentioned it before, but, oh, come on, it's the KG used to be. (laughs) Um, Okay. Give me some more. What's Russian for ass? Shopa. Well, stop blowing smoke up my Shopa. <laughs> okay, and the one before uh, that? Pack your bags. We're going on a guilt trip. 
<laughs> no, no. These are they're great. The sexy ones. Oh, wait, you mean, well, I was trained to swallow all sorts of things. Careful, I might just have to marry you. That one. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, can you recall his opening one about referring to a penis? No, what's that one? She says, I'd be stupid to trust my life to walking penis. <laughs> and Charlie Sheen responds, I'm much more than walking penis. I'm a flying penis. Uh, <laughs> Terrible. I think this is legitimately not too bad, a line uh, where he has, let's just say she did for bullshit what Stonehenge did for rocks. I mean, that requires, you know, you know, it requires knowledge. You have to think about it. It's equipped, but it's also, it's like the, it's like the New Yorker cartoon of uh, terrible 90s action movie quips. <laughs> um, were there any pearlers in Drop Zone? Not really. It's a surprisingly forgettable Movie in terms of quotes. Yeah, I mean, the only one I could think of is when Jesse says, people probably told you that Jesse Crossman was the only person skilled enough to jump from a 747. <laughs> and Wesley Snipes responds, well, the actual phrase used was dick brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but there was nothing, there wasn't much. I think I think Tim of Velocity easily cleans up here. Totally, totally. All right. The next award will have a lot of nominees. It'll be stacked. It'll be packed. It'll be competitive. Can you guess the next award coming up? Um, despite my poor memory of these awards, I'm going to say it is the Chewing the Scenery Award. Exactly. <sighs> so who's your nominee in Terminal Velocity? We need to create a whole chart of what do you call it when you, like, have um, uh, playoffs, you know, like a, a ladder where, like, you know, brackets because there are so many. Terminal Velocity. Yep, okay. So Charlie Sheen, obviously. Clearly. Gandolfini. Shooter McGavin, who is Christopher McDonald. Yes. Playing the character of Kerr. Yes. Uh, he's playing it like he's Biff from Back to the Future. Oh, totally. Totally. Okay, so, I mean, even if, let's say, let's go Terminal Velocity over here. Charlie Sheen, Gandolfini, Shooter McGavin. I'm going to lean towards Shooter McGavin only because he's making some big choices and it's such an unexpected piece of casting that that you would car- you would choose this guy as your heavy yeah, it is performance art. It is bizarre. It's like the casting director broke up with the director before the movie and thought, I'm just going to try and fuck you. I'm going to cast two women that look the same. I'm going to cast a guy who looks like Biff from Back to the Future who's meant to be the ultimate baddie and totally screw your movie up. Yeah, and I mean before this, what's what's he known for? A little bit of Thelma and Louise or Wild Orchid 2 if you're into it. You know, apparently he actually played Biff on the sidewalks of Los Angeles as a busker. Jeez. <laughs> well, you know, the guy who played Biff, <laughs> the guy who played Biff is currently playing Biff on the sidewalks of, um, no, that's me. Um, <laughs> that guy's awesome. I love you, Biff. Um, okay, so we got, on this side, we went through the bracket, Christopher McDonald, drop zone, Busey. Oh, Gary Busey. I mean, look, we haven't said enough about Gary Busey. We've said things. But I've been really keeping my powder dry for these awards. Okay. This one and the next award, which is the Taking a Paycheck Award. So can we just sit down at the altar of Gary Busey for a second? So here Gary Busey is, only three years after Point Break. He's also missing eyebrows, which is weird. His eyebrows obviously weren't paid enough to join him for this movie. And he's clearly thinking, okay, I wasn't the main guy in Point Break, right? He's the supporting actor. He's not the Johnny Utah. And don't you just think here he's gone, right, this is my chance to be Johnny Utah or or Bodie. 
Like, this is my chance three years later to step up to the plate. Will I lose some weight? No. Will I wear eyebrows to the performance? No, I will not. Will I act big? I certainly will. Yep. 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 There is there is no scene in the history of cinema that wouldn't be improved by having Gary Busey in that scene. And I've got to say, by the way, even though he does act big and chew the scenery, I just love him. Like, this is the thing, is that Charlie Sheen is doing performance art. Christopher McDonald is doing performance art. And I don't like them. I know you like them, but Gary Busey, I just could watch him read the phone book, even when it's terrible. You're saying he doesn't need to put on airs like they do. He doesn't need to pretend. He was he was born this way. I sort of feel he was. Like, I sort of feel like he came out of the womb fully formed. Like, or, or the motorcycle accident he had where he wasn't wearing a helmet created him. <laughs> so did that actually happen before Point Break? Yeah, 1988. He was in a serious motorcycle accident while riding a helmet. Um, so I guess that means that was after he played the peroxide blonde antagonist in Lethal Weapon. Uh, yeah, I guess so. But what, what year exactly was Lethal Weapon, like 86? Something like that, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he'd been in quite a lot of, quite a lot of movies um, before that. But yeah, I mean, I guess he he, he sort of had that Busey-esque persona. I think you're right. He was, he was born. He was born Busey, pure Busey. So, is he your nominee, your winner? Oh, uh, so it's Busey versus Christopher McDonald. I think Christopher McDonald, Shooter McGavin, isn't going to get a lot of chances to win this kind of award, whereas any movie that Busey turns up, yeah. he's in there. He's he's amongst it. So I'm going to say Shooter, but I can understand what with your Busey love. No, I agree with you. Um, Shooter McGavin, a.k.a. Christopher McDonald playing Kerr, you haven't won so much as you won on the putting greens of Happy Gilmore with Adam Sandler. But today, my friend, you are the winner of the Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. Okay, moving on to taking a paycheck. Well, I mentioned uh, Gary Busey and Drop Zone. Uh, any nominees for Drop Zone or Terminal Velocity from you? Hmm, not really. Is anyone slumming it? I'd be interested to know what Wesley Snipes did get paid, just just because I'm curious, you know? Yeah, I know. It's interesting. I mean, yeah, it's – I mean, he always – yeah, he, he notoriously was paid a lot and then also avoided t- paying tax and served jail time as a result. It's hard to know. Um, I sort of feel like Gary Busey would have probably been paid reasonably because this film is similar in concept to Point Break. It's using the same guy who was a major character in Point Break. I sort of feel everyone got the best in this situation. Gary did, the director and producers did. It was win-win. It was a very, it was a mutual paycheck decision. Well, what about Michael Jeter? You know, he's Tony award-winning actor, incredibly well-respected. He's an Emmy Award uh, winner, Golden Globe nominee, um, and then he sort of, you know, I I don't know if he did this one for the art is what I'm saying. Well, he did do it like it was performance art as well. His performance is pretty big. You know what? I feel that if he did it for the paycheck, he deserved it and therefore he deserves this award as well. Oh, we're giving it to Jeter? Good one. Yeah, let's do it. All right. R.I.P. Jeter. R.I.P. Okay. We've got a few nominees coming up here. I'm also very excited about this award. The Stephen Tobolowsky Award, a.k.a. Hates That Guy, named after that iconic performance where Tobolowsky played Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day. So, Gabe, 
which actor triggered hates that guy when he or she appeared on screen, starting with Terminal Velocity? Because I had completely forgotten he was in the movie, Shooter McGavin, I think I exclaimed out loud, Shoot, Shooter McGavin! <laughs> <laughs> and I looked around the room as if to, like, get other people excited, but I was alone. <laughs> um, yeah, totally. He's the best nominee for Terminal. I've got a few for Drop Zone, oh. and I want to see if you can guess them. Rex Lynn. Yes. He played Bobby, the bald character. He was in 187 episodes of CSI Miami and a lot of other TV and movies. He's like that classic guy who always plays like a cop or a CIA hard-ass, doesn't he? Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, you'd, you'd recognise him. He's, he's very much this award, isn't he? It's like, oh, there he is. He's that guy, the bald guy with the moustache. He's in all of Rennie Harlan's movies. Yeah, the only potential competitor for this award for him is Grace Zabrinsky, who plays Winona. She's done a lot of TV. She was in the entire run of Big Love and quite a few episodes of Seinfeld. Dude, Twin Peaks. Of course, Twin Peaks. She's in heaps of um, in David Lynch movies. That's true. So who gets it? I mean, it's sort of funny that I sort of feel that that guy award should go to someone like Rex Lynn who's been in a billion episodes of TV and movies. But it does feel that Shida McGavin is so recognisable for that one character. Okay. I I got another nominee, though, just before we... Who? Robert Lozado. He's in Drop Zone. He plays one of the goons. Uh, I think he's the Hispanic goon. Oh, yeah, he's quite good. He, he's seen everything, but always kind of just as uh, whether... Goon. Yeah, he's always just like, you know... Uh, you look at his uh, IMDb and it's a lot of like El Jefes and stuff like that, you know. But he's great. He's, I like. I, lo- I was like, oh, it's that guy. I love it when that guy turns up in movies. Well, I'm going to actually give you the responsibility of making the call between Shooter, Rex and that guy. Okay. Uh, Shooter's got an award. Let's not give it to him. Uh, let, let's just call it a tie. Robert Losado and Rex Lynn can share it. Uh, Deputy Dog and Bobby can have it together. So besides the humiliation of actually winning the Hey, It's That Guy Award, <laughs> they now actually have to be further humiliated by sharing the award together. Wow. Exactly. Hey, it's that guy, but also that guy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on to the Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. Let's start with Terminal Velocity. Um, this is a bit of a sad one. You know, it's a shame he died. James Gandolfini playing Ben Pinkwater. I just wish he was in more before he died and I wish he was still around now because you see him in roles outside The Sopranos and you think, you know, he was good beyond The Sopranos. He should have been in more. Yeah. Weirdly, in my mind, he's in so many more movies from the 90s than he actually appeared in. Yeah, totally. Sort of like Delroy, sort of like Delroy Lindo, um, you know. Uh, when he does turn up and stuff, oh, look, he's in Fallen. He's playing a cop in Fallen. You do love it. You do love it, don't you? <laughs> All right. So do we give it to him or who's our drop zone nominee? Uh, well, don't you want to give it to your, your best buddy there, Kyle Sakura? I've already forgotten who Kyle is. <laughs> uh, you're dead to me, Kyle. 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 Who's, who's Kyle? Who's Kyle? I've forgotten already. He's, he plays Swoop. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. You know, the actor yeah. The actor that, that, that I made you, I forced you to not give the award to. Um, no, I'm going with Gandolfini. Okay, let's give it to Gandolfini. All right. Let's give it to, to Jim. We're coming into the uh, the final stretch here. 
The Memphis Reigns Award, named after the absurd character played by Nick Cage in Gone in 60 Seconds. Gabe, who steals the cake for the most ludicrous name, starting with Terminal Velocity? Well, Ditch Brody. That's a cool name for a for a character. Ditch Brody, you know. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, ben Pinkwater is a weird name to choose. It's a choice. It's sort of weird that a spy would choose a surname that is so odd. Um, also, John Badham. The director in real life. John Badham. Not a great name to have if you're making cheesy movies. You're a bad ham, Badham. John Badham. It's a bit of a, it's a career risk. The director of one of the most famous movies of the 1970s, Saturday Night Fever. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But he's also made some terrible films. I think it's got to be probably Ditch Brody, right? Oh, yeah. And if anything, Wesley Snipes' character in Drop Zone, Pete Nessup, this is the- Which, by the way, is an anagram for Snipes. What? That's right. What? Oh, I take everything back that I was going to say. What were you going to say? That's a really boring character name, but oh man, there's mystery to it now. <laughs> what? I'm gonna. What else is a anagram? Um, I don't know about an anagram, but Ty, uh, Ty Moncrief, played by Gary Busey. That's a big name. Ty Moncrief. Uh, well, well, uh, Ty Moncrief. That's an anagram for Infector. What do you think of that? <laughs> It's very clever. So who gets it, Infector or Ditch? Uh, Ditch. All right. Okay, the Memento Award. Now, I can't even participate in this one because I watched both these movies in the last 24 hours. <laughs> so can you name any moments you completely forgot about until you rewatched both these movies? Well, considering I hadn't seen these movies for 25 years and that I struggle to remember the award we were talking about four and a half minutes ago, I would say... Vast swathes of these films, I um, I had forgotten, and a lot of it was nice. Like there can be only one, as they would say in a nineteen nineties Highlander movie. Which one gave? Yeah, well, I'm going to give it for Terminal Velocity because there's a there's a bit at the end, and I don't know if you wanted to save talking about this kid, the 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 ginger ninja at the end. Ah, oh, no, say it now. This is amazing. So okay, just to set this up, I hadn't seen this movie before. And I was surprised. But why don't you walk us through it? Okay, so at the end uh, they've saved the day and the Russians are doing some kind of like award ceremony, which seems bizarre now. They're like doing speeches in Russian giving ex-KGB people. Anyway, and Charlie Sheen's sitting in the audience and behind him is this orange-haired kid who gives him the thumbs up. Right, and it's really, they lay it on really thick, you know. It's like almost like there was 45 minutes of additional scenes starring this kid. (laughs) It's so weird because, again, did the casting director have a really bad breakup with the director and go, I'm going to really fuck you up here? Because this kid is very distinctive. Like explain to our audience who they decided to cast in this role. He has this electric orange mullet hair. He looks like a tiny prince, which is the prince whose father is clearly not Charles. <laughs> um, Harry. <laughs> Harry. He's like little Prince Harry sitting there. But but I, I texted you, Ben, and said, have I missed something? Did I, did I vague out in this movie and miss a subplot? I did the same thing. I was like- I, I, I did the same thing. I thought, I watched this movie and, and I was awake in the morning 
sans alcohol. I was sober. I was watching it clean. Oh, that's unusual and- for the morning for you, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It normally on like a character like, uh, you know, Mel Gibson from Lethal Weapon. Nice. It hit any cornflakes with like bourbon. <laughs> and, um, and I thought, wait, wait, I'm confused. Was he like a key character? Did I miss something in the starting sequence? Yeah. Is he her son? That's what I thought. I was like, was he- is this Natasha Kinski's character's son? Like, if you're going to get, there are so many levels in that moment, which is so confusing. And I just felt like it was a final up you to the studio or something. Perhaps it was a decision made, like a scene directed by Charlie Sheen, where, A, there is no need for Charlie Sheen to turn around and look at a random kid and give him the thumbs up at all. Like, it doesn't push the story forward in any way. Two, (laughs) the kid they cast is so distinctive looking and- doesn't look anything like what you'd expect a Russian kid to look like. <laughs> is, it, right? is he supposed to be Russian? Like, it's so confusing. <laughs> right. It's bizarre. And look, I, 100%, I would so recommend anyone just to find this movie and just, even if you don't want to watch the movie, skip to the end and just see this kid doing the thumbs up. It's amazing. This film is so gifable. Like, if you had a scenes of Shooter McGavin firing his gun as he falls, or this kid giving the thumbs up to Charlie Sheen, that is going to be my new replacement for the thumbs up emoji. Oh, because you could, it's magic. You could do a whole, a whole deep dive thing about who is this child. Like, what? Who is he? What did he do? How did he get there? Child actors, where are they now? Exactly. Weird. Weird. Very weird. Anyway, amazing. So I think he clearly. I mean. I don't even feel like we have to discuss Drop Zone. I just feel like that guy gets the awards straight up. Uh, all awards forever in perpetuity. He cast him more. He <laughs> in 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 just one gesture, he could have won almost every single award we have. You know, he chewed the scenery with his hair. You know, he's not cast enough just by virtue of who is he. You know, amazing, just amazing. Uh, all right, uh, now the last award, the Die Hard Award. Did any of these films inspire a crop of clones if imitation is the ultimate flattery? And I would say vice versa, that they were both, or at least Terminal Velocity, or actually, no, Drop Zone was inspired by Point Break. But I don't think so. There haven't been a rash of parachuting movies since these movies, have there? Well, there was Cutaway from the year 2000 starring Tom Berenger and Stephen Baldwin. And Dennis Rodman. And I sort of feel you've seen that. That seems to be in the gay wheelhouse of <laughs> escapism. <laughs> hey, look, if it's a if it's a piece of crap made anywhere between 1990 and the year 2002, yeah, I, I sure have. Hey, Dad, do you discuss emotions? <laughs> no, we watch Cutaway. <laughs> God damn it. I'm trying to watch Cutaway starring Tom Berenger. Dad, fuck, leave me alone. <laughs> you know? um, yeah, okay. So no, 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 no nominees, I don't think. No. No. All right. Now, I'm really excited about this. We're at that time of the podcast, Gabe, the Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes of a runaway bus in a crowded city and then boringly relocated it to a very, very slow cruise ship. Now, I'm excited about this because it's often easier to take bad films, which have a good concept, and then remake them or do a sequel. Mm-hmm. So imagine this. Okay. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel to Terminal Velocity or Drop Zone. They're both about renegade law enforcement officials who team up with a with a maverick skydiver to stop a heist. So, which film 
do we make a sequel to and what's our pitch to a studio executive to make it? Mm, interesting. And also I I bring you this. Oh, okay. Parachuting is cool. Mm. Parachuting is exciting. But let me propose that if we were to do a sequel to either film and first of all we need to decide which film is worthy of a sequel, I'm going to suggest that we do it with wingsuits. Wingsuits? Exactly. Wingsuits like in the Point Break remake or in the action sequences featured in Transformers Dark of the Moon. Because wingsuits, baby, are the new parachutes. Are they? So first of all, which one do we do? Okay, both these films are made for about $50 million. They both flopped at the box office. Drop Zone did relatively better. It made about $26 million. Terminal Velocity did $16 million. So unfortunately, they were both flops. That's okay. It's, it's fair to it's fair to say, Ben. We're not uh, we're not taking this meeting at uh, Paramount or or uh, Fox Disney. No, we're down we're down the street at Asylum Pictures. <laughs> you know, uh, they we're doing a mockbuster. They have yeah, that's right. They have you know they have a pretty pretty respectable one point two million dollars to spend on uh, <laughs> you know whatever we've come up. with. We can use all the blue screen in the world. That's right. <laughs> so let's think about it, right? So Terminal Velocity features Charlie Sheen as a expert skydiver who's a bit of a yahoo who meets up with an ex-KGB agent and helps her to dis- to try and track down some Russian gold. Mm-hmm. Drop Zone is much more similar to the concept behind Point Break. It's a really good cop who ain't so good at action sports who has to infiltrate undercover a group of very skilled and fun-loving, back-slapping parachutists or skydivers to try and track down Gary Busey's character, who is the head honcho of a group of criminals that skydive onto high-rise buildings to steal data with their hacker. Mm -hmm. So what's the next step? In both these movies, the baddies die, the goodies survive. But it seems to be reasonably resolved. Do we do a sequel with the same characters? Because Charlie Sheen... He's had some troubles. And Wesley Snipes, he has too. Well, I think something to look at maybe, Ben, is where are these characters at the end of the story? Like Charlie Sheen starts with his uh, specific set of skills skydiving, but he never particularly come, becomes like a better cop or a better, you know, fighting guy. He's never really, you know, like he he doesn't really learn much or whatever. So so what I'm saying, I guess, is that he could now join the KGB as a permanent member um, and now we see from his point of view something that we saw from Natasha Kinski's point of view. She was the cop who went into the subculture. Now the subculture is the deep and murky world of the international Russian secret service that Charlie Sheen has somehow joined. Kind of interesting. Drop Zone, at the end, Wesley Snipes has... He started as a cop, always a good cop, super cop. Now he's learnt to skydive. Now he's a cop who can skydive. At the end of Drop Zone, Wesley Snipes is the character who has it all. Where, where can you go with that? Well, perhaps he goes to jail for tax evasion like in real life. <laughs> okay, right. Has to break out. Has to basically try and hack into the federal government's tax servers to try and wipe his file clean. Right. So you want to do a, a, a meta a meta thing. Um, it's the Bean John Malkovich of parachute skydiving movies. <laughs> maybe, maybe. 
I don't know. I feel like you could take uh, Ditch Brody, the character, and, you know, uh, like the further adventures of Ditch Brody. Like what other shenanigans is he going to get himself embroiled with? Like, like he's just a regular guy with a knack for getting himself into trouble, you know? Well, there's another way of looking at this. You don't actually double down on skydiving or wingsuits. You just take the same concept, which is basically point break, and that was applied to drop zone, and you have the character Wesley Snipes appearing in another subculture. So take your pick, rock climbing or something like that. Because this is the thing. If we're pitching this to a studio executive or to a silent pitches, <laughs> right. I just don't think we want to bring Charlie Sheen on set. I sort of feel that Wesley Snipes looks pretty similar to how he did 20 years ago. He has a recognisable name, a recognisable brand. He's still kept in shape. I sort of feel he's a safer casting choice. And you know what? He can bring any character alive, no matter how badly it's written on screen. Not that we'd write a two-dimensional character. I'm just saying he's charismatic. And he proved that black men can jump in Drop Zone (laughs) to become a expert Expert. I think he proved that in White Men Can't Jump. Skydiver. It's in the title. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it just, you just got to invert it. Um, okay. Uh, so other subcultures. I, I like what you're talking about. We, we just do what they did and say, inspired by these movies, what are the current super hot trends that a cop would need to infiltrate, right? I'll tell you why also, because basically what we're doing is we're doing our own Fast and Furious Fast and Furious ripped off Point Break and we're going, you know what? Drop Zone did as well but did it badly or not as well as the Fast films which have eight to nine movies in the franchise. This is us going to Wesley Snipes to say, we can make you a star again with your own franchise. You can be like Dom. You can be like Vin Diesel and have your own brand. This is the Blade sequels you never had and you choose what is a subculture, Wesley, that you like besides karate. Well, I put into the Google machine biggest trends of 2020, maybe just to get some inspiration. And I'll just I'll just pitch you two or three. So a cop infiltrates plant-based meat. That's a big trend. That's hot right now. <laughs> uh, a cop infiltrates um, celebrity podcasts. They're very popular apparently. You know, he has to go undercover onto Dax Shepard's podcast. <laughs> Um, CBD. Oh, is that, that's legal weed, right? It, we don't have legal weed in Australia. We just have classic illegal weed. Isn't that stuff that you basically put like a, a drop on your tongue to relieve anxiety? I don't know. I, I, I pull bongs old school style, bro. I don't know. Um, um, <laughs> None of that edible stuff for you. No, 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 no. It's an ochi bottle with a garden hose stuck in there, man. Come on. Unless Wesley Snipes' character goes into um, underground edibles, gummy bear manufacturing. Oh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess. Um, so, so look. It's basically Charlie and the Chocolate Factory meets that Guy Ritchie film, The Gentleman, meets Point Break. Yeah, I guess so. It's a pitch, that's for sure. Um, what up? I mean, you said before, oh, you like wingsuits. Point Break Remake did wingsuits. Uh, although I have a deep and abiding love for Edgar Ramirez, Point Break Remake didn't really do it for me. So what other extreme extreme sports are popular right now? Well, uh, it can't be shuttlecock and it can't be badminton. It needs to be more exciting and something you can actually align to a heist. So... I just think about, is there a chance you can take that iconic starting sequence of rock climbing featuring Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible 2 
and make that a movie. A group of rock climbers. Like just recently there was that film oh, Free Solo, the documentary that won. That was nuts. At the Oscars, right? So is there- a- That's the guy with the fucked up hands. <laughs> like- exactly, yeah. exactly. Is there a chance you have these kind of rock climbers who often display OCD or high-functioning autism traits because they can remember every crevice and crack in a rock face and they've got to be very particular, otherwise they die. And essentially we have a group of uh, rock climbers that infiltrate high-rises or something like that and at the very end of the final sequence they can't use their safety wingsuits uh, or parachutes or any sort of ropes or lines, which therefore means they die. Yeah. Which is kind of what happens, I think, in- Point Break Remake. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> they have to climb the slippery waterfall, you know, and one of the one of the second string is the very forgettable supporting players. Yay, plummets to his death. So do we remake the Point Break remake? <laughs> yeah, kind of. Uh, look, look. I'm I am into the serious action movie heist version of Hello Human Fly Here. So I vote for this. Thank you. Season five, episode one, Simpsons. Uh, I've got to say, before we put a bow on it, there is also, of course, snowboarding, skiing. I mean, every James Bond movie has had that you know sequence uh, inception as well with machine guns and snowboards and uh, those little, <laughs> they call skadoos, that, you know, those little motorized things. So, Skidoo! But I always, <laughs> I, I do feel it's hard because you can only have a bank at the base of a snowy mountain once or twice. And we've seen in films like, what's that? Well, what are you pitching, a trilogy? Like, we only need one, dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> What's like- that Vin Diesel movie, the first one? Triple X, I think. He lands, I think, from a parachute and s- snows down on a snowboard and then throws a bomb behind him. I, but it's only an opening sequence. I don't know how you build a whole film around that. No, dude, I reckon you're onto it. Seriously, secret Swiss Alps, there is gold vaults buried deep in mountains within the Swiss Alps, right? Oh, I like it. Okay. I'm not, I'm, I'm not making this up. This is, this is true. Deep in the Swiss Alps, next to old airstrips, suitable for landing Gulf streams and Falcon jets, is a vast bunker that holds what might be one of the world's largest stashes of gold. Okay, well, I just realised, of course, we've got two great rock climbing references I completely forgot about that came out at a similar time, actually in the same decade, Cliffhanger and Vertical Limit. Oh, yeah. So what if we say our pitch this executive will be, it's Cliffhanger, set in the snow, great rock climbing sequences. There's a plane with gold they're trying to retrieve, but it's Cliffhanger meets Point Break. With Wesley Snipes. Yeah, and just don't 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 cross it out yet. We mentioned earlier, furries. Furries. Okay. It's furries. Now are furries rock climbing? Are we seeing care bears climb mountains? I don't know. Look, I'm 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 concerned, Ben, that um, we've actually given away a reasonably good premise for a, a thing that it turns out these these are these real Swiss Alps things. So why don't we just um wrap this up and go and write this dang thing. Done. We, but we need a title, of course. Uh, so before we say this to executive, please cut us a check for $27 to write the first draft. What's our title? The first film was called Drop Zone. Are we... Oh, I just realised, of course, we can use the same title because <laughs> yeah. surely rock climbing, right, involves, well, unfortunately, sometimes dropping and zones. <laughs> 
Here's this. Drop two zone. Well, I think... Drop zone, too fast, too furious. I think now that people have just thrown away the 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 thing where, like, a movie should have a title and you shouldn't retitle that, like, fuck you very much, the third movie called Halloween now or whatever, you know. We should make a sequel to Drop Zone and call it Terminal Velocity. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> How about we just take the two names of Terminal Velocity and Drop Zone, both twin movies, and combine them? Oh, yeah? What have you got? Uh, Velocity Zone. <laughs> Velocity Zone? Um, okay. How about Drop Line? Drop Drop line? Yeah, or zip line? Zip line. Zip line, yeah. Okay, zip line. Carabiner. Um, What's that move called you do, which I think we saw in Free Solo documentary, where you've got to like jump and like go and catch with your hands. And if you don't catch, you fall. It's like the ultimate high risk move if you're doing free soloing because if you don't catch, you die. What's that move called? I don't, I don't know, man. Don't. The don't drop me, Gabe. Hang on, Sam. Just hang on a sec. I think it's called the dino. It's that move where basically you launch yourself off the rock and catch it, and if you miss, you die. Right. But momentarily, for a second, you're midair without a rope, and it's all success or all failure. And we call it drop zone colon dino. Saw. Or something like that. What do you think? We need a name though. Yeah, just call it just call it dino. Dino. Now nah, drop zone two. Terminal velocity. Dino. Dino saw. I don't know. The Alps. <laughs> what do we got? What do we got? And Mr. Studio Executive, that's how we're gonna make a sequel to the Wesley Snipes nineteen ninety four film Drop Zone. <laughs> That's how we do it. <laughs> That's how we do it. All right, Gabe, that brings us to the end of the show. Big thanks to our awesome sound editor, Sam Haywood, for making this episode sound so good. You can catch Sam as at Showtown Sound on Instagram. And Gabe, where can listeners find more of your work in Musings this week? Um, on Twitter, at Gabe Dowrick, where I'll be posting a full statement um, about what Ben has said about furries. So look out for that there. The, you know, again, again, uh, our views, you know, are not always, this, this is a podcast that inspires debates, free, free thinking and thought and so on, but, you know, sometimes. Care Bears is not on, dude. Care Bears <laughs> is not on. And I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Instagram and youtube.com slash Ben Phelps. You can find all my podcasts, including Twin Movies, in the usual places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Thank you for listening, folks. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please share it with your mates and uh, hit us up online for any questions or opinions as to which film you think was the best twin movie. Take care and stay tuned for another twin movies battle very soon. See you, Gabe. See you, Ben. See you, Ben.